Welcome to EA Uncast, your weekly source for education, research, and updates from the European Academy of Neurology. Hello, everybody, and welcome to EANCAST Weekly Neurology. My name is Thomas Berger. I'm uh, head of the department uh, at the Medical University in Vienna, Austria, and also serving as the chair of the scientific committee of the European Academy of Neurology. But today's job is more the guest uh, moderator of sleep-wake disorders um, in neurology. And with that, I would also like to welcome Dr. Ambra Stefani. She's a sleep-wake disorder specialist from the Medical University in Innsbruck in Austria. And also our special guest today, uh, Dr. Rolf Frontek from the uh, Leiden University Medical Center and Sleep-Wake Center, I guess also in Leiden in the Netherlands. He's a specialist in sleep disorders, but also in headaches, and this might also have something to do with the focus on uh, hypothalamic uh, disorders, which may bridge the one and the other. I'm very happy that you are here uh, from your CV. I see that you're the only one who calls himself somnologist. So uh, I just want to introduce this term uh, apart from being an expert in sleep-wake disorders. I'm not an expert in sleep-wake disorders, I have to confess, and um, therefore I'm highly interested, of course, in the diagnosis and treatment of narcolepsy, uh, which is our episode about uh, this week. And therefore, I would like to start right in the middle of our discussion and chat and would like to ask you, how do we diagnose or how do you diagnose and then we should diagnose narcolepsy or CNS hyposomnolence? Well, thank you for the invitation. It's very nice uh, to speak with you. Uh, yeah, indeed, uh, one of the first steps that's also a thing we often discuss with residents is, is there actually a complaint of hypersomnolence? So is there a complaint of excessive daytime sleepiness? Um, because sometimes people uh, mean fatigue, that they don't have a lack of energy, but the core symptom of uh, narcolepsy and CNS hypersomnolence disorders is basically that you fall asleep during the day, that you have a problem staying awake during the day. And so it's not only fatigue or lack of energy, it's actually... Uh, increase sleep uh, tendency, that you have problems with work, with studying, relationship, friendship, daily life, because you keep falling asleep. That's the core feature. Um, and uh, that has to be there as a complaint. So clinical history is very important. Another thing that's very specific for narcolepsy, uh, type 1, that's the form of narcolepsy, as we call also narcolepsy with cataplexy, is the symptom cataplexy. And that's actually pathognomonic for the diagnosis. So if you are really sure that somebody has cataplexy, you can almost be sure of the diagnosis narcolepsy. And cataplexy is a loss of muscle tone triggered by emotion, often positive emotion, um, which is seldom seen in the consultation room because people have to be relaxed and let their emotions go free. So uh, you have to base yourself upon the story or you have to see a video perhaps. Um, so it's often quite short. So it's triggered by emotion. Consciousness is preserved. There's a gradual increase in the loss of muscle tone that can be partial or complete and people can actually fall to the floor and then they recover and they can remember. So it's not sleep. Uh, so if people have this uh, yeah, sleepiness during the day and this cataplexy, actually, you can be sure it's narcolepsy type one or narcolepsy with cataplexy. 
but of course, there are more CNS hypersomnolence disorder that are less clear. So then you have to look further. So clinical history is very important. But then you also want to have some objective tests to really yeah, be sure of the diagnosis. And one of the things of the things we actually do is we measure sleep during one night, the polysonography. In our center, we do that at home, so ambulatory, but you can also do it in hospital or in clinic. So you measure sleep one night, and that's mainly meant to look for other sleep disorders, like sleep apnea or other causes of the complaint. But in narcolepsy, this nighttime sleep is often very much disturbed and fragmented. And then, then you do an extra test during the day to um, be absolutely sure. And that's the MSLT, the Multiple Sleep Latency Test. Uh, and that's, uh, we call it in Dutch also the Dutch's test, so it's the nap test. So you um, uh, put people in a bed, in a room where it's comfortable, a little bit dark. And you just ask them, well, try to fall asleep. And you ask them four or five times. Then you measure how long it takes for them to fall asleep. And if, if it's shorter than eight minutes, we consider that abnormal. Then you can say that you objectified the hypersomnolence. So then maybe there's a CNS hypersomnolence disorder, if that's the case. And even more specific, if, you, if people fall asleep and they enter into REM sleep during the day, immediately after falling asleep, that's also very abnormal. So we call that sleep onset REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, and then with sleep onset. So if people have two episodes of SOREM, so sleep onset REM, two episodes, and uh, the sleep latency is shorter than eight minutes, then we say this test fits with narcolepsy. Uh, and then uh, if you have cataplexy, to make it complex, <laughs> if you have cataplexy, we call it type one. And if you only have this uh, abnormal MSLT test uh, without cataplexy, we call it type two. And then the final part, if we're still not really sure, we don't do it that often, but it, uh, I think it's not the same in every country in every center, but if we're really not sure at all, we can also measure in the cerebral spinal fluid, asserted neuropeptide, because we know that the typical form of narcolepsy, so the type one with cataplexy is caused by a lack of hypocretin, and that's a neuropeptide, and you can measure it in the cerebral spinal fluid. So you can do a lumbar puncture and then measure it, and if it's absent or very, very low in the CSF, you can also be certain of the diagnosis, narcolepsy type one, or narcolepsy with cataplexy. But we don't do that in all cases. If the other tests are already clear, we don't always perform the lumbar puncture, especially not in children. Uh, so that's a long story, but that's basically how you diagnose narcolepsy or one of the other CNS hypersomnolence disorders. So having heard that, and in the meanwhile, the auditorium knows exactly that I am not a sleep-wake disorder <laughs> specialist, uh, more a general neurologist. So um, having heard these uh, diagnostic steps and possibilities, uh, but also the variety of hypersomnolence disorders, which may cause some headaches also in the differential diagnosis. So you're the specialist for both. Uh, what might be the pitfalls in the diagnostic pathway of narcolepsy? Yeah, one of the things that often uh, goes wrong, like when people are referred to us, we are a tertial reference center. So uh, often they've seen other neurologists and the diagnosis is unclear. Uh, because these tests that I just mentioned, especially uh, the MSLT, the NAP test during the day, can also be abnormal if you're sleep deprived, if you do shift work, if you're jet lagged. Um, so it's very important that uh, you have a stable day-night rhythm in the week or the, uh, before you do this test. Also, the complaints of excessive daytime sleepiness can be caused uh, by other things, eh? also with lifestyle. So what it's very important to do is also check for this. And if you only ask people, if you ask for them to make a diary, it can still 
be tricky. So we really have the advice, give the advice to do actigraphy. So an actigraphy means uh, is a wrist watch and it measures acti activity. Then you get a clear day-night rhythm and you can check the bedtimes. And if there's a, a good day-night schedule, if there's no sleep deprivation, no shift work and all these things. So that's also uh, vital in the diagnosis to so check for these other things. Um, that's a major pitfall, especially when it's not so clear, eh? when there is no cataplexy, when there is no clear hypocretin deficiency, and you think maybe it's one of these other CNS hypersomnolence disorders, so, such as narcolepsy type 2 or idiopathic hypersomnia, which basically means there's hypersomnolence and we don't know the cause, but we have objectified it. Yeah, then you have to rule out these other causes, and XCAR3 is then an important step. So that's a major pitfall. Also, sometimes you see that people really pay a lot of attention to HLA. So that's uh, the immune system. Eh? Uh, we know that almost all patients with uh, narcolepsy type 1 or the cataplexy form, they have the same HLA type, DQB10602. And uh, sometimes this is measured. And then if it's positive, it's seen as a, uh, yeah, this means it could be narcolepsy. But 20 or 30% of uh, people that don't have narcolepsy also have this HLA type. It only works the other way around. If you don't have this HLA type, you're very unlikely to develop narcolepsy. So um, often it's not that useful actually to uh, perform HLA typing only if to rule out the diagnosis actually. So that's also a pitfall. And these are the two major ones I can think of now. But of course, there are many pitfalls in life and in diagnostic. <laughs> Apart from the HLA uh, uh, typing, how important is for you in your center, but in general, the information by the relatives or the partner of a patient or a person suffering from a sleep disorder or specifically of complaints of narcolepsy? Well, it can be very important to ask them, uh, how is the night? Huh? If people sleep with a partner, you can ask the partner, is the patient uh, very is this disturbed night sleep? Is he lying quiet? Or is he sleeping all night? Or is he awake all the time? Is he snoring? Does he sometimes stop breathing? Can there be sleep apnea? Can, uh, does he uh, act out his dreams? Can there be REM sleep behavior disorder, which you can also see together with narcolepsy? Um, so that's basically how you use, if I may say it like this, the partner to ask how is the night sleep? And also a little bit to look at uh, how the interaction is and how the daytime complaints are affecting life, family. Um, and also in the treatment is, of course, uh, it's very important in the treatment steps to also uh, talk to the partner and the family. Or, uh, but that's the next step, of course. Um, but well, not everybody has a partner. And I think you can also make the diagnosis without a partner <laughs> if the story is clear. Yes, I guess it's not necessary to have the partner uh, to establish a diagnosis, but probably <laughs> to support, like in many things in our life, if we ask our partners, right? So uh, you mentioned already the uh, treatment. Uh, so on the other far end of the diagnosis is the treatment intervention. What are the basics uh, of treatment in terms of pharmacological or non-pharmacological treatment? And how important is the early intervention? Well, uh, it's, very, uh, it's all very important, of course. Um, often in some centers, uh, I, I notice that people get referred to us, that people make a diagnosis and then just make a prescription of a stimulant or something and then give it to the patient and good luck. And then uh, it doesn't go that well. So I think it's very, very important. What we really try to do is um, spend some time uh, explaining the diagnosis. And uh, also acceptance is very important. So we have uh, a narcolepsy nurse who can also see the patient and 
uh, explain them a lot. Uh, we have even sleep psychologists sometimes that's necessary. So the first step is really non-pharmacological. So people have to realize they have a serious disorder which affects life and it will, nev it will ne not be normal again, like what you really want to always be more difficult. So you have to accept that. And then um, the next step is behavioral intervention. So fixed bedtimes, which is good for everybody. <laughs> and also short naps during the day. So we first start with that because it can be really refreshing and seen as hypersomnia disorder. We call it a refreshing nap so people can feel restored again after a short nap, not too long. It's like 10, 15 minutes, um, put an alarm clock, maybe do it at work uh, after your lunch or at school. Um, yeah, that's important. But children especially, uh, you said early intervention. Well, we think, and I think in children, that's very important. Because um, because of cataplexy, they often suppress their emotion. It impairs their emotional development. They get more obese after they develop the diagnosis. Uh, where it's friends, relationships at school, it interferes a lot. So the faster you can uh, help, the, the faster they can be on track again and have a better and norm more normal development. So then really uh, giving them, we often give them a slideshow so they can present it at school, like what is the disease. Uh, we take care of even some, we have a team that actually can go to the school so you can discuss the planned naps during the day. That's all very important. And that's all before you start medication. Because then often this is not enough, of course, people also need medication. And uh, then you depending on what is their main complaint, you start with one of the uh, options. And the most simple ones, if I can say like this, is stimulants. So against the excessive daytime sleepiness and to concentrate and have a better clarity during the day, you can give stimulants like methylphenidate or modafinil, which works longer. And uh, you've also, there are certain drugs against cataplexy. So low dose antidepressants, you can give this, it's a little bit more old fashioned. And um, if there's also disturbed nocturnal sleep and cataplexy, one of the newer options is sodium oxybate, which is, is also now not that new anymore. It's gamma hydroxybutyric acid, so GHB. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, you really have to explain to people that you could give this not because it's a party drug to them, but because it's actually helpful, very helpful for narcolepsy for children and adults, and it can help their night, it can help their day, it works against cataplexy, they lose weight. So often, uh, you, yeah, very often we give sodium oxybate, which can really help a lot, but then you really need to guide them well, like how to take it, what times, what they can expect, uh, don't drink alcohol, um, when do you eat? Uh, uh, when do you take it at night? When do you wake up? So it's um, there's a lot, it's, it takes some investment, but if you then have them on a stable dose and a stable regime, they can really improve. So that's really worthwhile to do. It's re also rewarding to do this. So, uh, Rolf, this was the easy part of the interview because okay. now uh, it comes to Ambra and her questions, and they will be, of course, much more on the expert level. And therefore, I would like to hand over to Ambra, please. Thank you and hello Rolf also from my side. You are a, a, an expert, so even my question will, will be easy for you, I'm sure. So uh, thank you for explaining something about uh, the treatment also, non-pharmacological treatment in the first line and also the pharmacological treatment. Uh, you said something about uh, what we can call a classical treatment option for narcolepsy. And uh, also, uh, it was clear that there are also some drawbacks from these treatments. It's not, um, these drugs are not always easy to use uh, and they might be problematic. And we also know that uh, they are not uh, always helpful in all patients or not enough, uh, not working enough. So um, 
luckily, there are at least a couple of novel treatments which uh, uh, became available in the last few years. So could you tell us something about the new treatment options? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, there were some exciting developments, some new treatment options. Yeah, uh, the more classical stimulants, they mainly work through the dopamine pathway and they can have side effects like uh, palpitations, high blood pressure, agitation, some mood problems, and sometimes they just don't work enough. So I was trying interesting to see that there was a new uh, treatment um, based upon the uh, histamine system. It was always very uh, nice also when I tell this story to students that we consider histamine actually as part of the immune system eh, in our body, like uh, for allergies and inflammation. But in the brain, histamine has a different function. So evolution made our brains different. Like if it's within the blood-brain barrier, histamine is a stimulant. So it uh, keeps you awake. It's part of the arousal system. That's also the reason that the old-fashioned anti-allergy drugs uh, give sedation because they reached the brain and the newer ones don't. So some uh, company uh, was very smart and they invented a way to use this. So they use, it's very complicated, an inverse agonist, but in the end it means there's a higher histamine tone in your brain if you take this drug, it's called pitorizone. And you take it in the morning and you slowly build up the dose. And uh, people that uh, have used the other stimulants, the more classical ones, say this, it works different. They feel different. So if it works, they're more clear in their head. They're more awake. They even can have less cataplexy. And it feels to them like a, a more, yeah, a more like their brain clears up. And it's not that you're really stimulated. So they really like it if it works, but it doesn't work for everyone, like always. And one of the major side effects, of interest to me, is headache. <laughs> but it disappears. If you slowly build up the dose, the headache disappears. So that's a really new option, um, and it's becoming more and more available. And then there's also a, a new compound. It's called Soljarmfetol. And that works partly more in a classical way. That is works, works on a dopamine system in a really strong way, but also on the adrenaline system. And this one is really a strong stimulant and um, it's uh, not available in the Netherlands yet. So I don't have a lot of experience with it prescribing it myself. But if you look at the numbers and the studies, it works strong. So I'm looking forward to actually being able to prescribe it and see for the patients where really nothing worked, then maybe this one will work. So these are the two mo most recent new uh, drug options for narcolepsy. And also you can use it. It works for allopathic hypersomnia. If it's reimbursed, it's not a question in some countries, but it also works for that. Yeah. Yeah, great. So it's uh, always good to hear that there are new treatment options for patients. And that, so it's also possible uh, uh, to make some more individualized treatment, uh, yes. which is also important. And uh, But I know also that there is more in the pipeline, so something more probably coming in the next few years. Could you tell us something more about? Yeah, that's very exciting. Uh, but also, it was a little bit disappointed last year uh, because I was hoping it would happen before. Because every time you tell the story about narcolepsy, especially to uh, naive students, they say, but why don't you just give hypocretin to these patients? Why did you give it back to them? But hypocretin is a large molecule and it cannot pass the blood-brain barrier. There have been some efforts with nasal spray and things, but it didn't really work well. And then the animal models, they used a long needle to <laughs> put it into the ventricle. So then it has some minor effect. But in the end, that's not the solution. You cannot give it to people like that. So some companies have been working for a longer time now on hypocretin agonists, so smaller molecules that can cross the blood-brain barrier and could actually then causally treat narcolepsy. Sounds too good to be true, but uh, they succeeded. And there are some compounds now, uh, various companies have a compound now. And um, yeah, I heard some rumors and stories, some small tests that people that have been using it, 
first intravenously really felt improved, like almost normal again. Those were the stories. Uh, so I really want to see how this works uh, for real. So there was a trial, of course, like always, but uh, one trial had to be stopped due to uh, hepatic toxicity problems. And uh, well, now new trials will come and I'm sure I'm convinced that in the end they will work this out and there will be some compounds on the market. And then you get all these very extremely interesting questions like, can you give this to a patient and will they feel normal again? Will you treat it narcolepsy causally? And then it then also work in people that are not hypocretin deficient. So like type two and idiopathic hypersomnia, there are some signs that it might work, but will it keep working? And what will happen in the night? Do you also have to have a lower dose in the night? So it's very new, very exciting. And patients really are waiting for this. So this is really exciting. And it will really change the way we treat narcolepsy. I'm looking forward to this. So it seems that there is a, a obviously even more brighter view in future for also patients with narcolepsy. I would like to thank you, Dr. Frontek, uh, very much for your very educational, clear and uh, insightful Uh, discussion of the diagnosis and treatment of narcolepsy. This is very helpful. I would also like to thank Ambra for the challenging questions. And last but not least, I would also like to invite the auditorium to our next episode, because then we will get also the real-world insight by the patient's view on the narcolepsy. And I think this would be very complementary to what we heard today from Dr. Frontek. Rolf, thank you very much. Ambra, thank you very much. And as I can uh, say every time, stay on air for our next episode. Bye-bye. This has been EANCast Weekly Neurology. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcatcher for weekly updates from the European Academy of Neurology. You can also listen to this and all of our previous episodes on the EAN campus to gain points and become an EAN expert in any of our 29 neurological specialties. Simply become an EAN individual member to gain access. For more information, visit ean.org membership. That's ean.org backslash membership. Thanks for listening. EANCAST Weekly Neurology is your unbiased and independent source for educational and research-related neurological content. Although all content is provided by experts in their field, it should not be considered official medical advice.